All right, good morning. It is such a joy to have, um, to see your faces. And what a precious time of fellowship out there. We're just so thankful for Chandler Bible Church that they allow us to be here on Thursday mornings and that this year they've allowed us to have that time of fellowship. So, um, again, I just I hope that you take advantage of that, that you try and get in there just as soon as, as you can. I know there are a lot of new faces for me. And uh, so it's really, um, I'm looking forward to getting to know you. Before I forget, because if I don't do this first, it's out of my mind, I'll forget it. Um, Allie wanted to, me to remind you and to pass on to anyone that you see that we are going to be over in Barnes Hall again on Sunday. So just so you know that, so you can drop off your kids and then get over there on Sunday. So, all right, I want you to take out your notebooks and turn them over, and uh, we're going to look at the back of them. We're going to go over our purpose and our disciplines. And the reason that we do this, Jamie mentioned last week we're going to do this every week. And the reason that we do this is so that we don't forget why we gather together on Thursday mornings. The purpose of Wellspring is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live gospel-transformed hearts thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. That is the goal of Wellspring. That's why we're here. And today's lesson is all about helping us see how much our hearts need shepherding. We must see that. And as the year continues on, our prayer is that we will become only more and more convinced of that need and that we will become diligent in feeding our hearts with God's word so that we get to God himself and so that we will live gospel-transformed lives. Last week, Scott Maxwell got us started by explaining how we describe the gospel purpose at Grace Bible Church. We want to be a church that is faithful in drawing in, in building up, and in sending out. And so to help us with that, we have the three disciplines. So the first discipline is the heart. She prayerfully, and it's on the very back of your notebook. If you turn your notebook over, I see some of you looking for it. Okay. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. So what is the heart? We touched on it last week. The heart is the real you. Um, All of the ways in which the Bible refers to the inner person, the mind, the spirit, the soul, the will, all are summed up in one term, the heart. It's who we are inwardly before God. It's not a piece of you like the physical heart of us is a piece of us, but your heart is you. It's who we are inwardly and it's how God sees us. And what our hearts need more than anything else is God himself. And that's what he's given to us through the gospel. He has given us himself. And the place that we meet with God needs to be in his word. As we were reminded last week, the word of God is the means to an end. The end being God himself. That's why a plan to read through the Bible um, in a year is our main homework. We want to make sure that we are in all of God's Word, reading all of the Bible, because it reveals God to us, and it reveals how needy our hearts are of Him. We need to be convinced that if we don't meet with Him in His Word, it will affect every aspect of how we live. And then discipline number two, the home. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. So the first place that we need to live out our heart for God and the gospel is with those people with whom we live. Discipline number two is an overflow of discipline one. When our hearts are cared for, when they are fixed on Jesus, and we've shepherded it by meeting with God in his word, by basking in his glory, overwhelmed by his splendor, and by worshiping him, that will impact our household relationships. 
because our conversations and our attitudes and our service toward them all will reflect that we have met with God. And then discipline number three, ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Having a heart that is engaged with the God, with God through his word, having ministered to those with whom she lives, then we are prepared to step into the lives of others in our church. And we'll know how to help them. We'll bring the gospel to them and we will encourage them with the truth of God's word. And we will be able to help them shepherd their own hearts with the word of God. See, if we're thinking this way, then there will be fruitful ministry in our church and beyond our church. And that's what we want, right? We know that's what will honor God. So this morning, we are going to look at the gospel's impact on our hearts. So this is going to be our outline for the next two weeks. So take out this chart, if you would. Scott touched on some of these last week, but we're going to look at them in a systematic way today and next week, and we're going to look at them in a little bit more detail um, than what Scott did last week. As you can see, there is a lot on this chart, and uh, that means we have a lot to cover this week and next week, but I don't want anyone to become overwhelmed, okay? If this is new to you, don't let it overwhelm you, and even for those who have taken Wellspring before, as we go through this, you're going to see that we've added a lot from the things that we've covered in past years. And so let me encourage you, okay, although there is a lot of material that we're going to be going over this week and next week, it will be worth it. I think you'll really be blessed by looking at the gospel's impact on our own hearts. So I want you to understand, okay, as we go over this chart, that it's going to take time to be able to absorb all of the truths on here. So we need to let this be a process. Okay, you'll see that there are score lines on it. It's meant to be folded up and to be kept in your Bibles. Take it out often. If you wear it out, we'll have some more printed. Not a problem. We want you to use this. We had these printed for a reason. Okay, and if this is new to you, if you're hearing things this morning that you have never heard before, then I'd encourage you maybe listen to the the this um, lesson online again so that you understand it. This, these are just basic truths from God's Word that are really important for us to understand. And I can't remember if we mentioned last week, but each lesson is um, online. You'll be able to find it under resources online. So, um, so that if you need to, I just want you to know that it's, it's available to you. Okay? Now, as you can see, because of all the material um, that's on here, I want you to understand that today we're going to look at a forest, okay? You need to look at it that way. And although we're gonna, going to um, look specifically at some individual trees, uh, you need to know right up front, okay, that there is no expectation that you remember everything that's on this chart, okay? But... I do want you to get the big picture. That's what I want you to come away with this morning. And the big picture is this. Today we are going to look at the gospel. And we're going to look deeply into the greatness of our God and the great salvation that he purchased for us through Jesus. Essentially, that's what you have on this chart. It's a really deep look into the greatness of God's salvation work through the gospel. And the reason that we're doing this is twofold. So after this week and next week, if you walk away with only two things, these are the two things that we want you to walk away with. The first is that we must shepherd our hearts. Okay? That's the goal of Wellspring, and that's the goal of this lesson that we're going to look at this week and next. And then the second thing is that the gospel, the truths that we're going to look at in here, are essential for shepherding our hearts. So we need to remember that our hearts need shepherding, and that the gospel is essential for shepherding our hearts. So let's 
start. I want you to open it up. And I think it will be most helpful if we start by just looking at the very top of the chart. Okay, we're going to look at who those, those little figures at the top represent. Okay, you'll notice, or hopefully if you look really closely, that um, on all of the figures except the one that represents death, that they have an inner man and an outer shell. The inner man, again, is who we are at the heart level. It's who we are inwardly. That's what we mean when we refer to the heart. And then the outer shell represents our physical bodies, or what the Bible refers to as our members. So when you read the Bible and you, you read something that refers to members, you can go, oh, that's the physical part of me. That's my physical body. It's, it means our hands, our eyes, um, our mouths. And we need to remember, we need to understand that there is a connection between the two. There is a principle that is always at work in humanity. Our members always manifest who the inner man is. Okay, Our members reveal who we are on the inside. They give away what's going on inside of us. They reveal what we are. In Mark 7, 21 through 23, Jesus said, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So that tells us that the heart is the source of all of, uh, all of the, our wicked thoughts, desires, words, actions, and our members, that physical part of us, is where all of that comes out. So for example, if we say something careless, we can't really respond with, well, where did that come from? As if it came out of nowhere. As if it didn't really reflect what was going on inside of us. Jesus said it came out of our heart. So what comes out through our members reveals what already is in our heart. So I want you to notice the figure on the very left where it says on the up on top or here where it says unregenerate man that man is totally depraved if you look down in the blue section under unregenerate man there you'll see that this is an unmixed condition notice that that figure is completely gray depravity affects every part of this person inside and out then if you move to the right, you'll see two vertical lines and then see where it says event. This is the event of conversion. And again, Scott talked a little bit about that last week. It's when we become a follower of Christ through the gospel. Because people like this over in the left-hand column need only one thing, and it's the gospel. So then if you continue to the right... <coughs> Excuse me, you'll see where it says new creation. Okay? That represents our life as, as believers. The event of, of conversion makes us a new creation once for all. The inner man is fundamentally different than what we see over in the unregenerate man. But the outer man is being renewed day by day. That's why it's called progressive sanctification, because it's a process. And that's why you'll see in those figures that they, are, they turn from a little bit darker gray to eventually becoming more yellow. Okay, they're changing as you move to the right. Then I want you to look down again to that blue section under new creation, and you'll see that unlike the unregenerate man, this new creation is in a mixed condition. Okay, then you'll see another vertical line up at the top that says death, that represents death, or what the New Testament refers to as sleep for the believer. 
That's another unmixed condition, but it's a very different unmixed condition than what we're going to see over in the left column in the unregenerate man. We continue to exist even though our body is gone. Because though the outer man is dead, the inner man continues to live. And do you notice that it's all yellow? We will no longer be fighting against sin. Because we'll be with Jesus. And then at the very, very right, you'll see um, the glorified body. And under that section, you'll see where it says glorification. So either at the resurrection or at the rapture, we will receive a glorified body. And that will be our eternal state. So that's just a quick overview of where we're going to be going this morning and next week as we look at the gospel's implication for our hearts. Now, we're going to look at the blue section underneath. And as we go over this, I just want you to to point out one thing. Um, You need to look to coordinate the top with the bottom at where the peak of the blue points to. It's really evident in the unregenerate man. Conversion, see where that peaks. All of this points to the event of conversion. And then the new creation points to those three men. Um, In a perfect world, if we could have had it done our way, um, we would have had these three men centered over new creation. But uh, Mike Jones, who did such a great job, if you see him, tell him thank you. He really put a lot of work into this. He reminded me that we don't live in a perfect world, and what I was asking him to do, he couldn't do. So in your mind, and that's why he put this peak, these three men really ought to go over new creation. And then obviously glorification is a little bit easier to understand. Okay? So let's dig in. Let's look at that left-hand column where it says unregenerate man. If we really want to understand the gospel, understand it for the purpose of evangelism and also what it means to preach the gospel to our own hearts and the impact that it has on uh, on our Christian life, on our sanctification, then we need to begin by understanding and reminding ourselves of who we were before Christ or who a person is without Jesus. Let's look at what God's word has to say about the unregenerate man. Okay, This is how God describes all of us before the gospel had impacted our lives and made us new. This was our identity before Christ. Now, this is almost hard to say, but although it is always, always our desire... And we always best to have you open up your word, open up the word, and go th- and look at it while we go through this, because there are so many on here. So just for today, and possibly next week, but I think next week will be a little bit easier to cover. Um, I might encourage you to just listen for today as I read the verses to you, so that you really understand the chart. I'm concerned if you go back and forth, you might get lost. And then, on your own, go over those verses again, and then I think it'll make more sense to you that way. Okay? Excuse me. So let me read um, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You'll see that um, in that first column there. Listen to what it says about us before we knew Christ. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly walked in the lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So you'll see in your chart on the left that we were dead in sins. We walked in sins. We lived in the lusts of our flesh, and we indulged in the desires of our flesh and mind. And we were children of wrath. Our flesh and our mind were in complete agreement. There was no tension between the two of them. That's why this is an unmixed condition. It's a sinful condition. Now, listen to Ephesians 2.12. 
Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was our condition. We were without hope and we were without God. And ladies, when we lose sight of that, when we forget that the lost have no hope, I think it's really easy for us to quit caring about the lost, about sharing the gospel with them. So it's important that we remember that they have no hope because it grows in us a love for God and a love, a heart for the lost. And it reminds us of how badly we need the gospel. And we're going to see that more next week as we get um, to the sanctif- to the new creation part. So let's continue to look at the unregenerate man. Colossians 1.13 describes man's identity without Christ. Okay, It says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness. We were rescued from the authority and the power of darkness. The prince of darkness, Satan himself. We were so in his grasp, and we were content that way. We loved it. Darkness was our master, and we were enslaved to it. We didn't have a choice but to, but to obey it. And those who have not been born again are still under that control of darkness. They are spiritually blind. They don't see that they are under God's wrath. Colossians 3, 6 says, For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. In fact, a non-Christian doesn't generally see this to be true about herself at all. I certainly didn't. And there's a good reason for that. Notice, you'll notice where it says Titus 3, 3 on your chart. It says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived. We were deceived. That's why we didn't didn't understand how lost we really were. It says we were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Our sin ruled our choices and our attitudes and our relationships. Colossians 1.21 says, You were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. See, these all describe us who we were before Christ. We were alienated from God and we were hostile toward God. We were engaged in evil deeds. Now, we may not have understood that that's the condition that we were in, but that's what God's word tells us. That's who we were. Romans 6 tells us who our master was. Verse 6 says we were slaves to sin. And verse 19 tells us that we were presenting our members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. We were slaves to sin. And we were taking our members, our hands, our eyes, our mouths, again, everything that expresses what is in our hearts, and we were presenting all of that to be slaves to impurity and to to lawlessness. We were totally unrighteous. And then you can see, again, all of the other descriptions that are on that side of the chart. This is what is true of, of any unbeliever, of any unregenerate man. So again, I'd really encourage you to go over the rest of those on your own. And as you do, do it prayerfully. Remember what God has saved you from. Okay? Now, I want you to look at the very bottom where it says key descriptions of this old condition. 
And uh, we're going to summarize those. That This is what is true of the unregenerate man, one who is not a follower of Christ. And again, it's what every believer used to be. We were in an unmixed condition. Okay, again, there was nothing within us to disagree with the fact that we were slaves of sin. Excuse me, remember Ephesians 2.3 told us that we indulge in the desires of the flesh and mind. They were in complete agreement. Therefore, there was no fight within. We were not fighting against sin, and we certainly weren't fighting to get Jesus. We were dominated by and enslaved to sin. We were unable to shepherd our hearts away from sin and to God. And even when we did try to battle against our sin, all we really could do was trade one sin for another. I may have decided I didn't want to do this anymore, but then I'd become prideful and arrogant about it. Okay? Um... I really wasn't, and neither were you, turning to God in it. We didn't have that capacity to turn to God. There was no humility. And the whole time, we couldn't see that our best efforts in God's eyes were merely filthy rags. We weren't earning anything from God except wrath. And then the final description of this old condition is that we were under God's wrath and judgment. There is a penalty for sin. I mean, look at that column. How can God be just and not punish that? What you made of yourself, what you earned, what you loved... How could God not judge you? How could he not judge me? In Romans 2.5, Paul is speaking as if to those who are still in this condition. And he writes, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So there is a penalty. There is a judgment that will come, and it must be paid. So that's our past. That is our old identity before Christ. Or if someone is not saved, that is still their identity. That's the bad news. And again, we need to understand this bad news because it gives us a heart for those who remain in that condition. And it grows in us a deeper and deeper awe for God and what he has done for us, in us, through the gospel. So I think sometimes it's good to stop and look in the rearview mirror. We don't live there, but it's good for us to remember that this used to be true about us because it grows, again, it grows in us a a gratitude for Christ's work. Now, we get to move on to the next column and talk about everything that's inside that box marked conversion. What God has done for everyone that he has taken out of that first box, that unregenerate, unmixed condition, and who he is now placed in Christ. As we go through this event section, the key that we need to remember is that all of this has been accomplished by God in the gospel. I think Scott used this term last week. There's only one set of fingerprints on this, and it's God's. They're God's. And that's why this is the best news of all. So the first thing that we're going to look at in this column are the foundational truths upon which all of the other gospel benefits rest. Listen from Luke, beginning in verse 45. Jesus has just been raised from the dead, and these are among the last words that he spoke to his disciples. Then he opened his excuse me then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them thus it is written that the Christ would suffer so that's the first component 
and rise again from the dead the third day, there's the second component, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations. That's the third component. So here they are again. The three foundational truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ are Jesus crucified for sin. That's what what is meant by saying that he suffered, that he would suffer. Jesus raised from the dead. And then proclamation of repentance and faith for the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Okay, That's what Peter proclaimed and that's what Paul proclaimed. And that's what you will find in all of the rest of those foundational truths on your chart. Again, I encourage you to look up those references on your own. And you'll see these three foundational truths are repeated over and over again in the gospel mission. This is what is at the core of what we need to share when we share the gospel. Okay? Sometimes it's like, I have this great opportunity, what do I share? These are the three things that they need to understand. This is the gospel. Okay, now let's move on and look at the benefits of the gospel. These gospel benefits are all a part of the conversion salvation event. Remember, this happens one time. It's an event. These are things that God does alone. This is his work in us. And remember that it's an event. These things that God does when he saves a sinner, he does all at once. All at once, all of these benefits are applied to us. Now, we're going to look at some theological terms as we go over this um, part of the section. Um, But remember what Scott said last week. He encouraged us that we don't need to be intimidated by any of these words because we need to understand them. They're in God's Word, okay? They're important. And I want you to understand why. Let me give you an example of a word that we do understand and show you how helpful it is to use the specific word that we mean to use the words that are in the Bible. Let's say that we decided that the word sin might be too difficult to understand. It might push people away, okay, if we talk about sin. They might not know what we mean if we use the term sin. And so, instead of teaching about sin through the Bible, we replace the word sin with maybe a simpler, less intimidating word. Can you see the consequences that would result from that? Okay, we can't really understand the gospel if we don't understand sin, right? Our understanding of the gospel at best would be a much shallower understanding than if we do have a biblical understanding of sin. So in the same way as we look over these words, we need to understand that they're important because they add depth and clarity and detail to our understanding of the gospel. So we're going to look at what they mean so that they become useful to us, so that we they're beneficial to our understanding and, and our sharing of the gospel. I think it really is helpful. Okay, so if you look down in the blue section there, the first thing that you'll see is uh, the, theolo- excuse me, the theological summary of Jesus Christ. It says penal substitutionary atonement. And Scott went over this real quickly last week, but we're going to look at that term again this morning because it summarizes the gospel. I think the word gospel is used very broadly in the church, and I mean the universal church today. And I think sometimes it's used in a very unbiblical way. And so uh, this term, penal substitutionary atonement, will give us a biblical understanding of the gospel. So even though Scott, as I said, Scott went over this real quickly last week, we're going, to do, we're going to look at it again and break it down word for word, unless there's someone who remembers everything he says and wants to come up. No? Okay, then let's look over it again. Okay, so penal is the first word. It just means it's a penalty. Okay, remember that we saw in our key description under the unregenerate man that there is wrath against sin. 
God is a righteous God who in his righteousness will not leave sin unpunished. Okay, that's what that's what is meant by penal. There is a penalty for sin. Substitutionary. It means one taking the place of another. Okay, we're given a picture of that throughout the Old Testament of a lamb being sacrificed for the sins of those under the Old Covenant. We looked at some of those last week. The lamb took the place of the sinner whose sin was covered. In John 1.29, John the Baptist borrowed that the Old Testament imagery of a sacrificial lamb. And he declared of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, the Lamb of God, was a substitute lamb who shed his blood so that the penalty of sin could be paid. Okay, so that's penal substitutionary. Now let's look at atonement. If you take the word atone and you break it in half, you get at one. Okay, so atonement is God's work to make us at one with himself. Our penalty had to be paid by a perfect substitute so that our sin could be atoned for, so that we could be made right with God, so that we could become at one with God. Okay, so that's penal substitutionary atonement. Our penalty had to be paid by a substitute so that our sin could be atoned for. That is at the core of the gospel. So when someone asks, what is the gospel? Or what are, what we, or if we have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone, or even when we're using it in our vocabulary, what we need to be thinking is that a penalty had to be paid by a substitute to atone for our sin. Okay, and then the rest of all of these benefits that we're going to look at help explain that phrase. So let's begin with regeneration. And we decided to put the terms on there. So when you go over it, um, you'll be reminded of what these mean. Regeneration means born again. Okay, that's what God does in us when he makes us spiritually alive. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ, by grace you have been saved. God is motivated by the richness of his grace and by his great love with which he chose to love us. He makes the believer alive together with Christ. Okay, not just alive, not simply spared from hell, but alive together with Christ. And that's what we see in the next term, union with Christ. Our relationship with Christ is, can be summarized through that phrase, union with Christ. Through that union with him, we receive all of the benefits of the gospel. Scripture talks about our union with Christ generally, like what we just saw in Ephesians 2.5. And there are also verses that describe our union with Christ more specifically. Okay, We're united with Christ in his death and burial. We're united with Christ in his resurrection. And we are united with Christ in his ascension. Romans 6.3 focuses on the significance of our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. So I want you to listen to this. There's a lot in this passage, but I think it will help you understand our union with Christ. Starting in verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, 
certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died from Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So the important thing to understand about our union with Christ is that we died with him. And now we live with him. We cannot go back to what we once were. The old self, the unregenerate man, everything that we saw to be true about us in this column, it's dead. God has taken that unregenerate man, who we were over here, and he has crucified us with Christ. And he has buried us with Christ, and he has united us with Christ in his resurrection. And that was such a powerful work of God. It was so complete and final that we can never go back to that unmixed condition of sin again. We cannot lose the benefits of the gospel, and we never can go back to what we were before Christ. That is great news, isn't it? Now, are we still going to sin? Yes, unfortunately, we will still say yes to sin. But we can never go back to being a slave of sin, completely dominated by sin as we once were. So let's look at another benefit of the gospel. We have been adopted. <clears throat> Ephesians 1.5 says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. We are his beloved adopted children. Because of his kindness, he brought us into his family. We are now his. God himself is our father. And what kind of father? Romans 8, 15, and 16 says, For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again. Well, then what kind of a spirit have we received? It says, But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So when we're reading the word, We're hearing from our Abba, our Daddy, our Eternal Father, who is kind, who has adopted us forever, who has freed us from slavery and fear, and has given us his own spirit to live within us. And he has made us heirs with Christ. What an amazing gift. And then, if we move on, you'll next see expiation. Expiation simply means sin removed. If we are going to be at one with Jesus Christ and with God, we must have our sin and our guilt taken away. It must be expiated. John 1.29 describes that as sin taken away. Colossians 2.14 says that our certificate of debt was taken out of the way, being nailed to the cross. Hebrews 9.26 says he has been manifested to put away sin, that's expiation, and he did it by becoming the sacrifice. Man desperately needs that. If we're going to have a relationship with God, our sin must be put away from us. So let's go on to the next word, propitiation. And that means wrath 
satisfied. If there is any hope for us to have a relationship with God, God must take his cup that is filled with wrath and he must pour it out completely, not a drop left, so that when he looks at that cup, he is satisfied because his wrath toward us is gone. Why? Because it has been placed on his son in our place. Our sin has been taken away and his wrath toward us has been completely satisfied. Most of us are familiar with Romans 3.23, but I want to read it with verses 24 and 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that he made him who knew no sin to be all of that, all that's on that left-hand side, the unregenerate man column, so that he might reconcile us Make us right before God. He had to pour out the wrath that we had earned by living in this condition. He had to pour it all out on Jesus, who satisfied his wrath. And then another key word is redemption. That means bought with Jesus' blood. There was only one thing that God would accept to redeem someone out of that sinful, unmixed condition, out of slavery to sin, and that is the blood of Jesus. Our penalty cannot be paid without the shedding of blood. That was God's design. And what blood was he thinking about from before the foundation of the world? Was it the animal sacrifices like in the Old Testament? It was Jesus' blood. In all of those Old Testament sacrifices, God was giving us a pattern, a picture, a shadow of the only blood that could satisfy God's wrath, the blood of Jesus, who at that right time would come and become that sacrifice. That is what God provided to redeem us to himself. Ephesians 1 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Did you catch that? What was the measure of God's redemption? It was according to the riches of his grace, of his unmerited favor that he chose to lavish on us. According to that measure, we are redeemed. We are forgiven. And then the next one that you'll see on the chart is reconciliation. It means no longer separated from God, but we are now at peace with him. Again, if we are to have any hope of being with God, we must be reconciled to him. God must overcome that separation that existed between man and himself. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. God did everything that was required while we were still his enemies to bring us to himself. He didn't just forgive us and then leave us off on our own, separate from himself. No, he reconciled us to himself. And we now have peace with God. Now let's move to the next one. Positional sanctification means to be set apart for holiness once for all. Now the word, and this is going to be important both this week and next week to understand. The word sanctification is used in the New Testament in two different ways. 
Okay, it's used to describe the positional declaration that God makes when he saves a sinner. That's what the Bible means when he re- when it refers to us as saints or as holy ones. But sanctification can also be used to describe the process of becoming holy. And we're going to get to that next week when we look at the new creation. But here, as we talk about this gospel event of conversion, sanctification means that God once and for all, in an event, made us holy in his sight. 2 Corinthians 1.2 says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. We were once and for all set apart. Okay? And do you see why we need this positional sanctification? If we are to ever have a relationship with God, we cannot be in His presence without being holy in His sight. Because He's what? Holy. He's a holy God. And so he has to declare us holy if we are to come into his presence. Look again at the unregenerate man, that first column. That man, that woman is anything but holy. So we need to be taken out of that. Our sin needs to be separated from us. Wrath needs to be satisfied. We need to be redeemed, purchased out of all that we were. We need to be reconciled. And God needs to set us in, the, in a place of holiness before him. And then let's look at that last one, justification. It means to be declared righteous. Both Romans 1.17 and Philippians 3.9 describe the gospel in terms of a righteousness from God. Romans 1.17 says that the gospel, excuse me, that in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness which is from first to last. That is righteousness. To be declared righteous, not on our merit, but based on the, on faith in Christ's merit. In Philippians 3, Paul points to this same righteousness, which is by faith. He's explaining why he counts all things to be rubbish, why he has suffered the loss of all things, and beginning at the, verse of, at the end of verse 8, he says he's done all of this so that I may gain Christ and be found in him how not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith so Paul is saying that God has imputed he has credited Christ's righteousness to us on the basis of faith he declares us to be righteous based on Christ's sinless record. Now, let's summarize the work of the gospel, which transforms uh, the unregenerate man or woman, everything again that we saw in that first column, and makes him something new. Listen to what he has done. We were dead, but Christ made us alive. We were alienated, But God united us with his Son. He rescued us out of the domain of darkness and adopted us as his very own. He expiated, he removed our sin. He propitiated, he satisfied his wrath against us through his Son. He redeemed us with the blood of Jesus. He reconciled us to himself and he set us apart for holiness. And he justified, he declared us right in his sight. And the riches of what God has done for us in the gospel just go on and on. Follow along with me as I read through the list on the right hand 
um, part of that column. It's number three, positional realities for the believer because of the gospel. We are holy, we are beloved of God. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Christ lives within us. We are members of Christ's body. We are members of one another. Christ is our head. God will complete the work that he's begun in us. We have confident access to God. We are under grace. Our sins have been forgiven. We have been saved from God's wrath. We are free from condemnation. We are washed. We have peace with God. We are new creatures. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are freed from sin. We are enslaved to God. We are enslaved to obedience. We are enslaved to righteousness. Jesus will never desert or forsake us. We were created for good works. And we are now a part of Christ's kingdom. All because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And all of that is part of this conversion event When the gospel benefits are applied to the sinner and she becomes a saint, it is God's work and God's alone. And that brings us to number four, the response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the question we should be asking is, how do all of these gospel benefits come to be ours? We have to believe. We have to believe that our penalty was paid by a substitute to atone for our sin. Okay, what term should you be thinking of? Penal. Okay, very good. See why it's important to know that? That's what God did for us. The only way a person escapes from the depravity, everything that we saw over in that left-hand column, and secures the hope of eternity in Jesus, which we're going to talk about next week, is to repent, to look away from ourselves, to turn from our self-rule, and to look to Christ's death and resurrection, and to believe that his death and resurrection is the only sufficient payment for our sin personally. That Christ is our substitute. And that he has satisfied God's wrath against our sin so that we might be forgiven and receive a righteousness that is by faith. And that is something that God brings about. He causes us to be born again to be regenerated, to be brought from death to life so that we do repent and believe that what Christ accomplished in his death and resurrection is everything that we need to have our sins forgiven and to have eternal life with him. That is the event of conversion, what God did for each and every one of us when we were saved. And event realities, remember, have only one set of fingerprints on them. God's. Now, I don't know about you, but when I remember what God has done, how I used to live as an unregenerate woman, enslaved to sin, But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved me, with which he loved you, made us alive together with Christ. How can our response be anything other than worship? Through his word, when we have his word open, Our expression ought to be worship through prayer. I hope you thank him for all that he has done. Every time you look at these conversion realities, that you will in prayer thank him for his amazing work 
that he has done in your life. Through song, that's why I'm so excited about our opportunity to be able to worship together this year, and through our very lives. And so that's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray, and then Cammie's going to come up and close us in song. Father in heaven, to say thank you to you just almost seems so trite in comparison to all that you have done for us through the gospel, through the cross of Christ. Thank you that when we were dead, because of Christ, you have made us alive. That when we, when we were alienated, when we hated you, that God, you united us through your Son. Thank you that you rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. And Father, I pray that though we fold up these charts this morning, that we will not forget these gospel realities that are true for every one of us who believes. And Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't understand this, maybe someone who has never believed, and Father, I pray that she would have the courage to to ask questions of her discussion group leaders, someone that she knows. Father, we thank you. We are in awe of your gospel work in our lives. And I pray that we it would only cause us to submit to your work in our lives so that our lives truly bring you honor and glory. We thank you so much for that. In Jesus' name, amen.